poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, 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 my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is a practicing attorney who has racked up close to $2 million in career live MTT caches, Leo Wolpert. One highlight of Leo's career that you're about to hear all about is his WSOP gold bracelet win in the 2009 10K Heads Up event where he bested the likes of John Duffy, Dustin Neverwin Wolf, Jamin Stokes, and Michael the Grinder Mizraki. While the poker world has certainly gone through its fair share of scandals in 2022, I think it's especially important to shine a bright light on the folks in the community who spend their life force doing the noble work, and to me, Leo fits the bill perfectly. In today's show with Leo Wolpert, you're going to learn all about his journey through the world of poker, a devastating statistic regarding our beloved canine companions, how poker currently fits into Leo's life, and much, much more. Now, without any further ado, I bring to you the one and only Leo Wolpert. Leo, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate um, you having me here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And as we do on this show, you can't really chase poker greatness uh, without some sort of story and some sort of beginning. So let's talk about your origin story and what did what did your entry into the world of poker look like? Uh, I got into poker through just basically being a competitive kid who was always into sports games and kind of hit my ceiling pretty early in a lot of the competitive endeavors I got into, especially sports. Uh, I feel like my, my sports career peaked at somewhere between the ages of 12 and 14 um, and not very high. So after that, I kind of got into quiz bowl, which is academic competition, trivia, basically for, could, could we could I ask you about why competition resonated with you so much, um, especially if you know the pinnacle of your athletic career peaked at thirteen and, and didn't peak very high, right? So, what oh, yeah. was it about the allure of competition that, yeah, just made you want to want to keep engaging in it? Um, that's a great question. I think. I'm not sure I've really fully examined that, but it's got to be related to just loving winning. Uh, I love winning. So so, you can see the rabbit hole. (laughs) Exactly. I love winning. And then from there, it kind of flows naturally. Uh, And also just uh, my dad got me into watching sports and being a fan. Uh, He got me into playing sports and just, yeah. Also, I feel like... um, I was a pretty sensitive kid and became a fairly sensitive adult. So the highs and lows of winning, I think I felt those somewhat more intensely than, than some people. And that probably also drew me in. Mm-hmm. What is it about winning then that makes you enjoy it so much? That's a 
It's, I, I'm not sure. I've, uh, it's a feeling. It's tough to define. Um, just a sense of accomplishment. Yeah, it's just it just makes my brain feel good. Sense of accomplishment. Uh, anything else? And we'll we'll move on. Like internal, if you could describe the feeling of like winning, right? You know, you you have a WSOP gold yeah. bracelet. That's a pretty pivotal landmark oh, yeah. in a, a poker player's career. So. What what were those feelings that kind of came with that kind of accomplishment? Oh, that was deeply satisfying, I would say. Uh, not just because of the financial windfall, but kind of knowing that in the, at that time period, I had played a lot of heads up poker and I had been somewhat moving away from it. So to know, quote unquote, that I still, quote unquote, had it, despite one tournament not being proof of that, was, again, satisfying. Uh, and also, I had sold some action, so it was really satisfying to make my friends some money in that tournament. Um, yeah. But just overall, a lot of pride, a lot of, uh, and it was validating to my ego. It validated the previous four or five or six years that I had slowly gotten into and become obsessed with poker uh, and validated that it was worth my time and not just a, a fanciful, wasteful pursuit. Nice. So, you know, we've kind of, I guess, so we've kind of set the stage here of like what, you know, you're building to as this 12 year old kid. Um, you, you mentioned that you entered Quiz Bowl, right? Like, so yes. a, a new competition. And how did you do in Quiz Bowl and why Quiz Bowl? Uh, well, I've always liked trivia. I've always liked the kind of just answering questions, especially questions that are uh, have one right or one right answer. Just uh, that, that the simplicity of that, the kind of... Um, yeah, the simplicity of that. And also, Quiz Bowl played in, uh, at high levels, I think, is really engaging because it tests both breadth and depth of knowledge. And so it's a good entree to know a little bit about a lot of stuff. So if you find something that does interest you, uh, say a certain author or a certain historical period or a certain uh, subfield of science, from this quiz bowl knowledge, it's superficial. You can kind of latch in and you know enough to learn more. Yeah. And then you can go and take a really deep dive into certain you know, subtopics and get as obscure as you like. Yeah. And, that's, that's interesting. And it, it, it combines the, and it combines the competitive element with, um, with the knowledge element of just learning that kind of learning stuff and then being able to use it in the competition. <laughs> yeah. It gives you more opportunity to explore your curiosity. Absolutely. Feels like. So as, as you've entered Quiz Bowl, doing the competition, um, and exactly what is Quiz Bowl? I guess we, we should probably okay, start probably there. Probably preface with that, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, where teams of up to four uh, people each compete in a trivia competition with different kinds of questions. There are two kinds of questions. There are toss-ups, which are uh, questions that are open to anybody, and anybody can buzz in to answer them. And once somebody buzzes in, everyone's locked out, and they get to answer it. 
If uh, they get it wrong, then they get points deducted from the team score. If they get it right, then they get a uh, what's called a bonus, which uh, allows you get to uh, usually in standard formats three times more points. Um, and these bonus questions are usually three sub questions on one topic, and they have kind of they're supposed to have like an easy, medium, and hard part to really differentiate the the skill and talent levels of the teams. And also the uh, toss-ups, going back to those, those are kind of not just testing uh, reflexes, but they're supposed to test depth of, depth of knowledge by kind of going from gradually, from more obscure clues to more obvious clues. Um, it's tough to think of an example off the top of my head because I've been so far out of the game for so long. I mean, I stopped playing Quizable probably in 2007 as poker was more taking over my life. And also I was aging out of it. I was already by that, by those standards, a dinosaur having played in college and in grad school. So, um, but yeah, I, so I can't really think of a well, so question it, off the top of my head, but it's a team, so, com you know, team competition. How, how do you go about like compiling a team? What does that process look like? Um, you, the people who come to practice, <laughs> it's a really <laughs> self-selecting group. Yeah. So when I went to the University of Michigan, uh, there were practices that were, I mean, have dozens of people. But, okay, maybe two dozen people at most, but, uh, or a dozen. And so you could divide, the, divide it up into teams, divide it up into separate rooms. So you could just kind of have kind of intramural competitions and just like practice. Mm -hmm. And from those practices, you learn what, subjects people have the most depth of knowledge in and so you can form teams based on specialties and that's essentially what we did and we ended up my senior year we won a championship i was the, the fourth best player on the team but you know uh <laughs> the win's the win baby <laughs> how many teams and, uh, were in the championship what does a championship entail Okay, so a championship involves some uh, qualifying tournaments and then the national championship tournaments, which were held in April. And there were two main quizable organizations back in the day, and I think they both still exist now. Um, NAQT was one of them, and ACF was another. And there were they each held national championships at a different college campus, usually within two weeks of each other in April. And if you qualify for those, you you go there and they'd play, I think they're usually between 30 something teams. I want to say like 32 teams maybe. And they play, it's not just like a straight up single elimination bracket because people are traveling just, you know, long distances to get here. They want to get their money's worth. So there's a, a round robin aspect. People usually divide into eight or nine, um, divisions and then have a round robin with those and then make playoff divisions so overall you're getting a lot of matches in a weekend maybe 15 16 games and i think that's also and hmm, one thing about quiz Bowl is like it's pure competition there was no real money in it we were just kind of doing it for the love of the game and kind of knowing that you had um that you had won this championship over people who had self-selected to be just as equally obsessed with this silly game as you, you know? Yeah. That, that pride meant a lot. Ah, I can imagine. I mean, there's not many people that are national champions at anything. Um, and so a thing that is on 
you know, it's not as if I haven't ever heard of Quiz Bowl. You know, I've, I've heard of it. It's on like, I assume most college colleges have some sort of team like across the U.S. So, you know, it's not a an, not a small um, group of humans that want to win this thing. What, what lessons, you know, we'll hit pause in your story for a moment. And what lessons did you take directly from competing at Quiz Bowl to the felt? I think first uh, resiliency maybe is there were several matches where we had to come back in Quiz Bowl. Hmm, maybe not that. It's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I honestly, uh, I'm not sure what directly correlated from Quiz Bowl other than just kind of having that skill overlap of decent memory. Any sort of training? that helped any sort of like memory techniques or learning techniques? Oh, actually, uh, no, not, no, that's, that's good that you asked that because I think it helped me realize that I learn best through reading and not through visual or audio means. Um, just because the way we would improve a quiz bowl was kind of dissecting old questions into their constituent parts, the clues, uh, and then write those clues down in a notebook. And then if you're bored, just look through the notebook, kind of put your hand over one side so you don't have the answer readily visible and you see it, and then, okay. Almost like, or also flashcards, that was another big one. Writing questions yourself uh, is, was a great way to improve and also serve the community because if you're writing questions, you're giving more people the opportunity to play. And of course, that could backfire if you wrote really shitty questions and got mocked for it. But, right. uh, <laughs> um, but if you're doing it right, I think writing questions in Quiz Bowl is one of the best ways to just learn new facts. And you also have to anticipate what other people are going to, what other people are going to write about. It's not exactly the most, um, or it is actually a pretty insular community. So uh, there's kind of a, there's probably some sort of advantage to just kind of knowing the tendencies of writers and knowing, you know, people's pet subjects are. Ah, so, like so we have this element too of understanding people, how they think, how they operate, um, that benefits you. And obviously in poker, poker is a game of people and understanding yep understanding um, your opponent's strategy better than they understand it themselves is like one of the things that I think separates the higher level players from the lower level players is that like, yeah, you can get, you can get into the mind of a weak player and sort of understand how they're thinking about poker and how they think about all the things and then create counter strategies to exploit that. Um, whether or not higher level players sort of verbalize that, I'm not sure, but I know that like for a long time, this is like, exactly how I play poker without being able to articulate it. It was like, Oh, I know you're folding your whole range here, but you don't actually know that you're folding your whole range here. And that's good for me <laughs> if I'm, Definitely. if I'm bluffing. Right. Um, all right. So now we can go back a little bit to, uh, after quiz bowl. And it sounds like actually we can talk about your college career and how kind of poker entered your world. Um, but it seems like there was this like pretty quick transition from leaving quiz bowl to poker, right? 
Um, no, it's, I'd say there's a lot of overlap between um, gradually ramping up at poker and gradually phasing out of Quiz Bowl uh, because I would say my interest in poker really started in college. Um, and how and old I, are you, I, by the way, to sort of set the timeline? Oh, so at this point in the story, I'm uh, 18. Um, and this is in 2002. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you and, I, a, you and I are the same age. So you're 38, nice. right? Yes. Okay, there we go. Oh, you, you were asking my current age is. Oh, yeah, yeah, so that we can kind of like, you know, do... Not in, not in the narrative, yeah. Right, right, right. Okay, so um, I can kind of remember the exact road trip I was on that got me into poker. And it was in 2002 after my freshman year had ended. I went back uh, from Michigan to the Eastern Seaboard and uh, our semester had ended a couple weeks earlier than most of the East Coast schools had. So a buddy of mine uh, said, you know, why don't you just hit me up on AIM? He's like, hey, why don't you come up to uh, Princeton? And it's, uh, there are no classes this week. We're supposed to be studying for exams. So everyone's just going to party all week. And I was like, sure. I don't have a job yet. My job doesn't start for two weeks. So I'm, I'm up there. And uh, I got there Thursday and they had a dorm room poker game going and they got me in there. And I, I knew the, I knew the rules. I knew what hand beat what, because I had dabbled in like, play money, five card draw on IRC back when I was 12. So <laughs> yeah, that, that's another story, but uh, it, I, I knew the rules, but I didn't know how to play at all. Like, we were playing stuff like baseball, uh, the seven stud variant where the, the high spade in the hole wins. And I was just getting to the river with, uh, you know, the king of spades in the hole and like two pair showing on the board. And like, I didn't have better than two pair. And uh, some guy was just like betting and raising into me. People were begging me to fold like, dude, he has the ace. He, has, he probably has a flush too. And uh, I was like, no, you're just trying to trick me into thinking that. So I'll fold. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so and I no, raised. No, he, and so, <laughs> no, so I, I did just call eventually, but I got shown the ace of spades and a flush. So uh, I quickly got uh, got taken for the 50 or $60 I had brought. But uh, it was worth it because I learned a really valuable lesson. And that is that poker is a skill game and not just random gambling. Because obviously, it was really obvious in the moment that they were doing strategies and tactics that were just superior to my just putting the money in there and, and hoping. And so when I got back to Michigan, uh, a friend of mine who was a psychology student in Michigan, he's also getting into poker. And so from there, I just started, I bought some Sklansky books, I bought the Lee Jones uh, Winning no limit or winning low limit hold'em, uh, and just went from there. Deposited on party, um, and started grinding fifty cent a dollar limit hold'em back in uh, two thousand three, two thousand four. Yeah, the old limit hold'em days. Of yep, party and then from there, I, from there I went to sit and goes, and um, from there, those sit and goes, I played those and some low stakes MTTs. I mean, I used to love that 11 rebuy on stars that where there's no rake on the rebuys and you could just, you know, fire off $200 in that and still wouldn't 
be the person who spent the most in that. And there's, you know, five figures up top and an $11 rebuy. That was great. Um, I would play those. And eventually through, I guess around 2005 when I was graduating and about to go off to graduate school in computer science, I was in the something awful forums and I uh, met Jason Somerville and he just helped me get my game to the next level. I mean, he was probably the first person who really talked me through concepts that I wasn't just reading in a book from some author, uh, from some author who just might, I mean, I don't want to denigrate Sklansky here, but there was a lot of, he wasn't exactly a no limit guy. Well, it was a limit. At least for a while, at least until he wrote that book with Ed Miller. Yeah. I mean, Advanced Hold'em was a limit book. To my yeah, yeah, hold them for hold them poker for advanced players. It was a uh, HEPFAP was the, the acronym there. Uh, I read that I did like when the, I remember the tournament poker for advanced players that Sklansky had, and I remember this uh, there's a passage where he says he goes on an aside where he's like, If you don't know how I arrived at this figure, you should put this book down, you're not ready for it. And I was like, Okay, and so I went and I derived it myself just to prove him wrong. He's like, Okay. I do know how you got this figure. I'm going to keep reading this book. Take that, David Sklansky. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, author. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... I don't know yeah. if that's a great thing to put in a book. I haven't written my book yet, but it probably won't have something like that. Um, to be fair, it did get the message across, and it did get me to uh, do the work yeah. and, uh, and figure it out for myself. So um, it did but have an inspirational moment. You're you're probably a rare breed, you know. Uh, I'm, I I would, I'm stubborn. I would <laughs> yeah. I would assume most people just read that and kind of rolled their eyes with contempt and moved along to the next paragraph, you know. Uh, I mean, there was there was a, a contempt, but then I realized he was he was kind of right that if I really didn't understand some of these fundamentals, that I wasn't going to get the concepts that were in the rest of the book. Yeah. So what? led you to sit and goes, I guess, from the Limit Hold'em games, just trying out a different format? Exactly. Trying out a different format. Um, And I think one thing, even though I've played a lot of cash in my life, I didn't make this realization until probably way too late, is that I just prefer tournaments and sit and goes to cash games in general, just from a a pure enjoyment um, aspect. And I think it's because in a cash game, the meta decisions weigh on me a little too much and kind of ruin the enjoyment of just the pure poker. The meta decisions being, am I good enough to sit in this game? Am I too tilted to sit in this game? Uh, Am I sitting to the right of uh, the lag when I should be sitting to his left? Uh, Just all those things added up where... In tournaments, sit and goes, those decisions are all just made for you from the outset. You you play against who you're there, you 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 accept who you're playing against. And if uh you know you have a tough table, that's that's gambling. If you have a great table, that's gambling. Like um you don't I don't don't have to use up my mental bandwidth on making those decisions. Also, those those decisions aren't just poker decisions, they're really self-evaluative decisions that uh, aren't always the, the most fun. It's never it's never fun telling yourself and admitting to yourself this game is too tough for me. 
Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's never fun you know, admitting to yourself, I'm counting my stack down over and over again. Maybe I'm thinking too much about this money and what it means instead of just thinking about it as chips that can be used to win pots. Um, you know, the, the other route to go is just to, you know, be delusional and sit in the game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, never, hey, never have that thought, right? Um, I, I, well, mean, I, I think I've definitely battled through the thoughts to sit in, uh, in games that were probably too tough for me, but it, fortunately, I've never done anything ridiculous like, I don't know, take out huge loans to, to play in games that were way above my, above my station. Right. I think that's like quite a different thing, you know, like as long as you're somewhat rolled for the game and even if it's a tough game, like to me, it's very hard for one reg to have a massive win rate over another reg. And so as long as there's a couple of amateur players in the game, then the game still should be profitable. Now it's not going to be as profitable as if it were full of those players, but it's still likely profitable. And and I think that sort of thought has given me solace of like, yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I've always been the type of person to like table start on most platforms that I play on. Like I will just sit there and wait for somebody to play with. And if it is a reg, then so be it. Um, they're probably not going to have a massive edge over me. And if you build it, they will come. Like what it ended up happening for the most part when I would start tables like back in the ultimate bets, ultimate bet days is because they had like poker table ratings and you could like look people up to see their win rate. People Absolutely. would <laughs> people would look me up and just not sit against me. Like the regs wouldn't. And then all of a sudden, so basically like if you, we've eliminated that player profile, the other player profile is the fish who would sit against me and then another one would sit against me. And oftentimes I would find myself at these really great games just because I sat down and started it myself. Um, and then those type of players kind of surrounded me. And then the guys that were just kind of waiting to swoop in would be stuck on the wait list, um, trying to get in the game. And so like, that's just, I guess a part of my, who I am or whatever. I just, let's start a game. Let's play. If the game is tough, then I tend to play in it. Um, and if it's hopelessly tough, then maybe I go grab dinner or something like that. Um, well, I do think that's an essential element of poker greatness is being able to hold your own and even get a get a good win rate in uh, against great competition. Um, well, it forces you to evolve. <laughs> like it, it forces you to to think more deeply about poker. Um, and I think that challenge element is necessary to progression. But also it is a, I mean, your strategy of starting games in the age of poker table ratings is actually probably really what's really ahead of the game because it self-selects for people who are ignorant of poker table ratings. So the people who, who aren't knowing that don't know that you're like a 97 or, you know, it was a, they rated up to 100, right? In poker table ratings. I can't remember. I just know they had BBs per 100. So you could see like... Oh, oh even, even more important. I mean, yeah, th this guy's a crusher. Um, you know, I, I don't want to play against them. Right. But, but only regs really are looking at that. So you're only exactly. it's using it to fade the worst action. Um, right. Um, and I, I would also do things like always start turbo tables and always start do seven tables on ultimate bet because like that was a thing 
everybody had two big blinds over their heads and you win a pot with like seven deuce. It just adds in this extra element or variable into the game that made the game more fun for me, honestly. I, I like those little twists to to the game because they, the strategies change. And I, I think that like as strategies change, um, Reg's edge kind of goes down if they're not able to adapt or not willing to investigate and learn how to play. But um, the turbo tables started those because like, Nobody who's playing like 12 tables is going to sit down because they don't have enough time to act. And the other regs typically hated them. So they (laughs) just wouldn't sit down and play. I remember somebody on 2 Plus 2 wrote like this long scathing post about me starting turbo tables, which is like hilarious in hindsight because they were like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Why is he always taking these tables? Like I'm always timing out and like, you know, it's just, it's awful. And I'm like, yeah, like I'm only playing six, so I'm fine. You know, I can, yeah. and I tend to act quickly anyway. So like, yeah, it, it was strategic and beneficial to me. And like, I think that just in general, th- thinking about poker in that way or yeah, just not being kind of afraid to put yourself out there to battle has a lot of rewards um, over the long run. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I'm talking a lot about oh, my it, my poker origin you know, stories here. It, well, it was certainly kind of battling people, especially heads up, is what led to essentially the heater that sustained me for uh, the rest of my uh, years through law school. Um, and then also, I suppose, uh, kept me from having to abandon being a poker pro for several years after graduating instead of you know, fully practicing law, uh, just from, I would say 2000, well, in 2007, uh, uh, first of all, I'd already been kind of going up the, the stakes at sit and goes at, I guess, one, two cash on party, stuff like that. And I was fortunate enough to buy 10% of uh, Jimmy Fricky in the Aussie millions. Uh, hey, he was just on the podcast. And yeah, I, I mean, he's a, he's a great, he's a great guy. And I was lucky enough to have like, it might've been one of the first times I bought action. And I mean, I can't believe how fortunate I was to buy, buy action. Somebody who's not only crushing, crushing that field, but also someone who's so honest and had, and had someone I had absolutely no reservations about trusting with the money or trusting that get paid out. And uh, so he banked it just, took my role to a, a spot where I could take a few more shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess through 2000, 2007 and 2008, I just went out to Vegas for the World Series of Poker. 2008, I ended up chopping uh, a bracelet event, a 5K shootout. And so that just is like, okay, well, now I can pay for law school, which I'm enrolling for in, uh, or which I'm been rolling in in a few months and also that same summer i was doing a lot of battling heads up i went on a, a just a absurd heater against a, one specific reg at 2550 and um <laughs> it's funny because when i got to law school probably not less than eight months later i played one of his friends heads up at fortunately lower stakes and his friends just absolutely crushed me and just talked huge shit in the chat about how lucky I was to beat his friend is like, you're probably right. Like I was running insanely hot. It's not like not every day you 
you know, get in a four bet pot with the ace queen against the ace king and you get the ace queen deuce flop and just get it in. Like mm-hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I was certainly running above my skill level, but from there, it made it really easy to feel relaxed in law school and have a real good time. Um, because, I wonder. Oh, I, go ahead. I, was, I wonder what it is about the space that like pl- humans feel the need to like talk trash and try to bring someone down for some reason that's just quite silly. I don't know what it is about like poker and the ego. Maybe it's heads up too because it's very intimate and personal. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's just kind of wild to me i've heard a lot of these like heads up stories about people just talking trash nonstop and, and oh, all these things and it's like i just don't understand um exactly why this happens uh, i mean and, and it ultimately hurt the guy because uh, i'm not the most sensitive i am fairly sensitive and he started talking that shit i'm like okay i'm not gonna play you anymore he right. probably could have won a lot more for me if he had uh, just kept his fingers off the keyboard um, for, for sure. Like I said, it just doesn't really serve anybody. I I just don't understand why. Like we're playing a game against each other, right? There's no reason to like try to make people feel worthless or feel dumb or feel bad about themselves. Like we're playing a, a game of cards and like it's just always mystifying to me how someone will someone has their who has their identity fully rooted in poker feels the need to talk trash that they're somehow better than this other person because they're better at some like silly card game that's played for money. Um, just oh, always it's weird true. to me. It's true. I mean, it's the same for a lot of games. Quiz Bowl is uh, not that much different. There's a lot of, um, there's a saying that, that spite fuels the Quiz Bowl engine and uh, taking L's to teams where you thought you were, that you thought you were better than that induces a lot of spiteful feelings mm-hmm. and you can, Fortunately, on our team, we turned that into studying and, and working harder to get better, but it can just be turned into purely talking shit. And I'm not going to lie, we are all young. We were probably talking shit too, but uh, we also fortunately put in the work to, uh, to back up our shit talking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people it breaks down and some people it builds resolve, I think. You know, there are some people that like you talk trash to them and they seemingly just get stronger and more intense and more focused and you that wakes them up um so anyway uh oh i definitely think also it was the early ages of the internet i mean i guess kind of the early ages the middle ages i don't know where (laughs) the dark ages (laughs) where people were just i feel like had really leaning into that freedom of not having to confront somebody face to face and using it to say stuff that stuff that they wouldn't ordinarily say or uh I, I mean I don't I've never met anybody in the real world that I would expect them to say the things that people said in those days at poker tables. Like it Oh yeah. It it is obscene. I mean it like <laughs> if you could imagine the worst thing that anybody could say to another human those are the types of things that are routinely said or were re- routinely said in online poker uh, chat boxes for whatever reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, they even have you know, acronyms that people made up to just 
bypass sure, the filters. I, and I mean, yeah, should have shorthand for insults. Mm-hmm. I need to, ins- I need to insult these people more efficiently. <laughs> right. Or, or like bypass the filter. Like it, it, it's like, this is how you spend your time. I, I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, but yeah, so you, you know, you, you had some success at WSOP. You paid your way through law school. Um, that's got to be quite gratifying. Uh, yep. I assume, were you living in Nevada? Because you went to school in Nevada, right? Uh, no, I went to school at the University of Virginia. Ah. Um, I, I'd also gone there for graduate school, but I, I dropped out as I kind of hit my ceiling uh, in computer science and was coming up in poker and just uh, the frustrations of... Uh, of just not cutting it. It turns out that the skills that made me good at, at being an undergraduate did not translate well to uh, advancing the field of computer science as a graduate student and doing research and just, it did not translate. And I was struggling. Yeah. But at the same time, I was also coming up in poker and it was so much easier to just take that path of doing something that I was really enjoying instead of failing at something that I was, uh, it was driving me nuts. Yeah. And so <laughs> pretty easy decision there. Yeah. And um so but I'd also started as part of my I guess coping with my inadequacies in computer science, I had done a lot of procrastinating. And uh some of that procrastination turned out to be reading articles about things in the law that outraged me, civil asset forfeiture, no knock raids violations of civil liberties, uh, violations of freedom of speech, those kind of things that just maybe it, it brought out the, the kind of fight in me. It's like, I definitely think that this should be changed. And I figured after I dropped out and uh, after I'd just been kind of being a quote unquote poker pro for a little while, I figured that if I wanted to try and get in that fight, law school would be the way to go. So it was at the University of Virginia. It was the first school I got into and the best school I got into. So uh, that was another easy decision. Um, And it was also in-state tuition. So I saved an extra like five grand a semester or something. And so, yeah, the summer before, like I said, I chopped that tournament, uh, the, the 5K shootout. And so... I was just coming into law school with all sorts of confidence, just, you know, and I would say reality hit in a little bit. Real, reality set in in a, in a few ways, uh, one of which is that I was toward the middle of the pack academically in law school, um, probably just slightly above the median, whereas in everything up until uh, dropping out of grad school, uh, I just always had outstanding grades and it was just kind of a shock to to be around people who were not only uh naturally more intelligent and more gifted writers than me but uh who are trying a lot harder than i was too and having had a lot of success in poker i admit that i was not trying as hard as i could have but say la vie um and also i guess for the kind of work i i'm ending up doing now it's not like my law school grades uh, mattered. So first year, I mean, it goes great, make good friends. Um, and then for the summer, after the first year of law school, people usually try and find some sort of, it's, it's really uh, tough to land a super high paying job 
unless you have connections or unless you're just a outstanding you know legal superstar so i applied to jobs that aligned with my beliefs uh, and happened to land one at the aclu of nevada and i also did apply to jobs in in las vegas so i would have an opportunity to maybe fire some tournaments while i was out there um yeah that's, so there's I, my my confusion i i saw that you're a member of the nevada bar and i think yes. that was why i assumed you went to school in nevada oh yeah i feel like i'm a uh, I'm almost a local by now, but I'm not a native. Uh, I grew up, and my my parents were in the Air Force, and we moved around and settled, ultimately settled in Northern Virginia, the D.C. area. Yeah. Um, but so going back to this, I had an internship at the ACLU of Nevada, um, one of five people, and there were a lot of really impressive people because I think with an organization like the ACLU, it it kind of has that prestige that makes people who have these kind of uh, beliefs in civil liberties and beliefs in uh, checking government abuses and halting government abuses of power uh, gravitate toward. But fortunately I had time to fire uh, three tournaments that summer. And uh, one of them was the 10K heads up. And it was, it was just one of those perfect timing, things perfect timing because it started I think on a Friday. Uh, so like Friday afternoon too, so I didn't have to miss up this much work. Um, and then Saturday and Sunday didn't have to miss any work then. And then it was supposed to end Sunday, but went through to Monday. But of course, people were understanding uh, about playing heads up for a bracelet instead of working a day in a non-paying job. So um, yeah, just and that was that was magical. I it's weird because I remember a lot of the hands, but I'm not sure I remember a lot of the specific thought processes that go into it because I was felt like I was really just in the zone. Any, one any of the matchups? Certainly not, not like a remember? fugue state. Uh, I could try and remember if I know them all. Uh, I think the first round was Mike Mizraki. Showed up late. And uh, easy, I mean, I gave, easy first round, the grinder. A, no, and I mean, the year before <laughs> I played it and lost to his brother, Robert, in the first round. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and uh, yeah, it's funny. He flopped a... <laughs> It's kind of fitting because he it, in the 2008 one, Robert Mizraki fought a set of sixes against my ace king, and then when I got down to the final match, I fought a set of sixes against against John Duthie's ace king uh, to to tie it at one one. But anyway, mm -hmm. it was the first round was Mike Mizraki. He shows up late. I give him some time. I said, like one of his representatives shows up, and he says, you know, he's running late. We give him some time. I say, sure, I'll give him some time. But what will the floor allow? The floor's like, well, we'll give him 20 minutes. 20 minutes pass and. He blinds out for like five minutes. So I probably started with like a 55, 45 edge or something in chips there. And uh, I think he was also probably somewhat steamed and distracted from having shown up late, showing up late in general. I think even somebody of his caliber can get uh, distracted by that. Sure. And so the, the second match was John Juanda. And uh, I think that probably uh, one of the toughest ones. Uh, there's just really no way to get a read on him. And he was playing, from what I could tell, pretty theoretically sound. Not that I was playing theoretically sound or even really had a strong idea of what theoretically sound meant compared to what it means today. But by, by 2009 standards, I guess, uh, it felt like he was playing really theoretically sound. And I just happened to get the chips in with, uh, with nines. And uh, he snapped it off so quick, I thought it was dead, but he had ace jack and uh, held up. 
Um, then played David Pham next uh, for on the bubble. And uh, of course, I just managed to to cooler him, which was fortunate because I felt like he, in the few times I had played tournaments in cash with him in Vegas, I felt like he held over me a little bit. So I was really pleased that I fought through the kind of, not intimidation, but kind of uh, low expectations against him um, or low personal expectations. Are you a lone wolf searching for the ultimate pack? The CPG Wolf Program is a close-knit brotherhood hell-bent on one thing only, chasing poker greatness. Powered by bleeding-edge wolf strats and led by Coach Brad and his lieutenants, CPG Wolves are systematically prepared for almost any spot they'll encounter on the green felt. If you want to plug into an elite team and have a step-by-step -step game plan to realize your full poker potential, you can apply at cpgwolves.com. Space is limited, and the pack is only as strong as its weakest member. So only the hungriest, grittiest, and most driven will be accepted into the program. Applications are open at cpgwolves.com. So what I'm sensing is not a lot of weak spots in this tournament. <laughs> Not a lot uh, of not, no. not a ton of gimmies. Definitely not. Uh, there there might have been, but I didn't play. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's the thing about a heads up tournament. I guess you're only going to play seven or eight different people, and you know the field could be two hundred weak players, but you could still end up playing the yeah. seven and eight tough, seven thirty toughest. Grinder, Juanda, Dragon, cool. Uh, I, I think uh, then next uh, was a I think it was Matt Woodward who's uh he's like an og like limit hold'em crusher i think he was uh his stream was turn the car off on ub and he used to just there's this famous uh well famous by famous by poker nerd standard <laughs> uh blog post where it's just him and matt harolenko host tvf playing phil homuth and uh phil homuth just going absolutely ape shit in the chat uh and just playing awful and getting crushed by these two two wizards but so i want to flip against him i think it was ace king against threes if i'm not mistaken something like that um uh and so that made it fairly easy i guess when you win those flips coolers um, and flips this is the tournament poker in a nutshell right i mean <laughs> heads up full ring six max it's all it's all coolers and flips and tournaments um <laughs> then i played i think a, a french canadian guy by the name of uh Clavet Matthew or Matthew Clavet. I never got it straight as to which was his first name or his surname. Um, and he ran, actually, I remember he ran a, a super sick bluff on me. And he got me to fold like top pair on a board where I think I would normally call top pair, but just stuff in the river and then just victory up the, the bluff right in my face. And uh, fortunately, uh, I just got over that by coolering him. It was, I, I think it was overpair against overpair or something like that, uh, which it's worked out pretty well for me. Uh, <laughs> and from that, I think we're getting down to like the quarterfinals now. And I played a uh, Dustin Wolf, uh, never win. Um, and I, I felt like, uh, you know, I ran pretty good against him. 
Um, and just, this is one of those where it wasn't, didn't just all come down to, to coolers and flips, it's more just uh, probably me just having a lot of hands and him not having a lot of hands and just being very card dead and uh, eventually just getting in there as a, as a big favorite pre sevens versus sixes and building up. Uh, then for the semifinals, I play Jamin Stokes of Detroit. Or at least he was, was he wearing a Detroit hat? I don't know. I might be mixing him up with somebody else. But he, uh, he was playing great. Uh, and this is, this is a, the match where I probably ran one of the bigger bluffs in my life, uh, at least in terms, it felt huge. So to set the stage, I guess I opened the 10 deuce suited. Uh, and he defends in the big blind. The flop comes uh, Jack, nine X. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I messed up. King nine X. Thank. That's on poker news. But anyway, I, 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 I uh, check back a flop for some reason, even though it's probably a theoretically, I mean, I think a solver would probably tell you to bet the flop like all the time these days. Um, the turns a Jack. So Queen 10 gets there. Uh, I think he uh, check calls, I bet. And then the river is a deuce. Maybe the turn is a deuce and the river is the jack. Uh, and he checks, I bet. He check raises. And I end up pre-betting for like two-thirds of my stack. Just because, and this is like, God, such a feel play. I never really thought of myself as a feel player, but this was in the moment just such a feel play where it's like, I don't think he has it. And even, it was even inspired by, I knew Ike Haxton was commentating on this. <laughs> yeah. He might not have even, he might not have even been commenting on my match because Johnny Chan was playing the other one, which of course is going to draw more eyeballs. Uh, I was like, wow, if Ike sees this, remember that hand he played uh, the PCA against Ryan Doubt? I would just do just be like, just like that. So I turned my bottom pair into a bluff tanked for ages and folded and then that was one I had to show uh just I don't know as much as I would like to think I I uh have suppressed and I kind of shaved off the the ugly edges of my ego uh over the years I definitely still have it in me uh to, to put in the needle and to to not have the best etiquette or I mean, it's not like it's terrible etiquette to show a bluff, but I didn't do it for any strategic purpose. It wasn't because I was like, this is going to tilt him or this is going to give me an edge. It's just like, I just did something cool. I want to show off. That yeah. was, that was Somebody it. needs to see this. Exactly. Nobody's going to believe me if I just said I had the, the, the bottom pair that I was turning into a bluff. Mm-hmm. Right? So that it, that's an interesting like psychological sidebar we could go down of like needing the validation of somebody knowing uh, because you yourself knowing it is for some reason not not good enough. Exactly. <laughs> so eventually, I won uh, that match. Um, I got it in flush draw over flush draw and held. It's always nice. And I ended up playing John Duffy in the finals. And fortunately for me, it was best of three because I instantly well not instantly it was a lo- drawn out first match, but I lost that one. Uh, and in that one, I will say I ran bad. I flopped a lot of big hands and sets. And he would make his draws and uh, win. Um, then the second match, like I said earlier, I got a set of sixes in like the fifth hand. 
against this top pair, top kicker, and we got it in the turn. So just locked that up right there. And the third match was was pretty epic. And it's a back and forth. He, John Duffy, I thought, one thing he did a lot better than I expected him to do was pre-flop, was pre-flop aggression uh, on these kind of 20-ish to 30-ish big blind stacks. I wasn't expecting him to three-bet me as often as he did. And, um, I mean, maybe he was getting better than, uh, better than average distribution or maybe he was picking up on me opening too wide or picking up on something. But eventually, I started switching to a limping strategy, which I almost never use online in heads-up sit-and-goes or in heads-up cash at all. Uh, and eventually, I, I limped the 5-3 suited, got the 10-5 free flop against 10-deuce, and then got the money in and won. <laughs> uh, and I'm pretty proud of myself in the moment for implementing this limping strategy and adjusting to do something that I, like I said, almost literally never did online just because it felt like uh, the right adjustment in the moment to counter his, uh, his pre-flop aggression that I hadn't previously anticipated. Right. It's like, it's also something that he's probably not anticipating either is the switch right. to the limping strategy. So he didn't have some sort of built-in plan to deal with it, which is just kind of like a wrinkle or a curveball. And I mean, that's kind of a thing in poker is like when you do something that's unexpected that the other player doesn't really have a map that helps them navigate. Um, oftentimes they do quite poorly and like you may do quite poorly limping since you didn't implement it. You didn't think about it. It was kind of a spur of the moment thing, but at that point, you know, it's who can do better in the absence of a, a pre-built plan. And I think that like, just by virtue of you like being in position, that's probably fairly helpful when you're limping in heads up. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's like a really cool, um, just a really cool in the moment change that yeah, probably helped you win, you know, the, the bracelet. Oh, I definitely, I think, uh, you know, if I raise that five, three, he might, you know, I mean, he's probably folding 90% of the time, but maybe he's just saying this guy has nothing. He's stuffing him in my face and just making, just winning a big pot he otherwise shouldn't be entitled to. Yeah, and to be fair, like, dude's made it to the heads up oh, yeah. portion of this event, right? So, like, he's probably well studied and fairly well prepared um, oh, yeah. to, to face a bajillion D different button open, since this is obviously the highest frequency uh, defense strategy that you're going to have to deploy is, like, facing, you know, the two-bet preflop. Uh, exactly. Um, so in those days, it was more like the uh, the 2.5x. So I guess it was calling it, oh. okay, they raised two bet, okay. Yeah. When I, think, when I hear two bet, I was like, oh, I just, my mind went exactly to min raise for some reason. Yeah, I try to... Uh, I, I, just, it, I, just, I, just, I just inferred that X after the two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why in poker. I'm trying to like, um, as I mentioned to you before, you know, building out my coaching for profit operation and just trying to inject language that, makes sense um that everybody sort of understands i i find it interesting that like we say open we say raise first in but then we say three bet which is like why don't we just say two bet right like 
you know, you could also say raise and re-raise, right? But like right. to me, it, it's so such a sequential thing of like the first bet is the blinds, and then you two bet, and then after the two bet is the three bet, and like that just eliminates the confusion of people saying like, you know, oh, so I three bet, and you're like, wait, no, somebody limped, and then you just place. It's not. Eh, eh. Right. I mean, and there there's a lot of wiggle room. I feel like in poker terminology, and that the more you play, I guess the more you kind of learn to um, or at least the more you talk about poker the more you kind of learn to interpret what people are saying even if it's not technically correct like oh somebody limps under the gun and then i open for three x well you didn't open somebody's you know somebody limps so you're not opening the action dude right but okay but you know what they mean you you know what they mean um for me like and, and you know we can talk about your adventures in coaching as well because this is another note that i have but for me like just communication as it relates to the coaching student relationship is so key that i i need to understand exactly what you mean and i need you to understand exactly what i mean for this relationship to be as efficient and optimal as possible and so from there you know the first thing that when when people join my cfp is like they have a you know a flashcard deck that's like the language of the wolves and it's like this is the language we use to describe flops pre-flop situations post-flop situations um action sequences like we, we all use the same language and, and like you have to learn and integrate it so that you know what we're talking about and can interpret you know the maps that we've built and that you're learning um definitely gotta, you gotta have that that um that lexicon that shared language uh, to really uh, get the most out of these ideas or explore them deeply. Absolutely. Um, so, anyway, back to your you take so, down yeah. you take down your bracelet. Down of, how did we even go down that tangent? I don't even remember what led to it. It's <laughs> not worth exploring what got us there. But uh, you win your bracelet, um, yep. and as you said, go back to go back to the internship the next day. Just you know, keep working, finish it out. Uh, play the main event. Uh, I mean, it is a lot easier to do, to do work when you believe in the cause. That's uh, even, even when you're not getting paid for it. So, but then I, I played the main event and uh, I mean, I think I live misclicked like three times somehow and uh, busted day one. Um, but I did find the guy who uh, dealt me that winning hand in the 10K. Did, did find that dealer and did tip him personally. So that, that was good. Uh, Cause that was one of those things I'd been meaning to do. And, uh, fortunately fortunately saw him there yeah I mean, usually i would have in a normal summer i would have had a lot, a lot of opportunities but only playing three tournaments that summer so but anyway i go back to law school for the for the second year and i mean i'm just i wouldn't say i'm an egomaniac but i'm definitely feeling myself and definitely feeling very confident about my future in poker my ability to uh just cruise through poker play online crush online and while also being an adequate law student, I wasn't gunning for the accolades. I wasn't. I was out of. I was pretty much out of the running for the ver- the various prestigious things that a law student can achieve, like Order of the Coif or highest GPA or being on the law review or winning the 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 moot court competition or any of those. So my goal was just enjoy it, learn some stuff get the degree and, uh, you know, continue to be decent at poker. Uh, fortunately, 
uh, the latter of those did not really work out because I started, I, I definitely think around late 2009 to up until Black Friday, probably uh, April 2011, the competition was rapidly outpacing me. Uh, and I was losing and not, yeah, just not, not made, I mean, I guess, I don't know, I don't remember if I won or lost in the year or whatever, but I wasn't winning at a high enough rate to, to make it uh, worthwhile. I mean, it was still worthwhile, but it was in a way because I was still enjoying the game and learning, but I certainly wasn't supporting myself and I was starting to get somewhat concerned about well, if I'm never, if I'm not going to be good enough and I'm not going to have the time to make myself good enough, that's a, it's a very worrying prospect because if I don't have a, a job lined up and not winning a poker, what am I going to do? It's a very worrying prospect. So I did do job interviews for, um, for summer jobs after the second year. And those jobs are, those interviews actually usually take place in the early portions of that semester. So I took it, got those interviews in August or September. And it was, you know, three months after winning that bracelet, I was probably just absolutely projecting, I'm too good for this job. Uh, you know, I'm great at poker and too good to be a lawyer. Uh, you can't make me work the insane hours that big law would make because I can always just bail out and go grind poker if I want to. And so obviously having, I guess, said those things without saying them just through my body language and demeanor, uh, I obviously did not get those jobs. So I went back to the ACLU of Nevada for another internship in the summer of 2010. Uh, because again, if uh, I'm not, you know, I might as well play poker and I have a few opportunities to do that because of course I'm going to win. And uh, I did not win. I bricked. And then after I graduated law school in 2011, I went out to play the World Series again and bricked a huge series yet again. So just those combined uh, really kind of had me doubting myself quite a bit and really looking kind of toward like, the, oh, shit, I might actually have to take the bar and uh, put this to use. And so I did take the bar exam in, in Nevada and, and passed, fortunately. And, uh, but even after I took that, just kept, uh, kept grinding live cash, kept uh, playing the tournament, tournaments in Vegas, traveled through a few in like Florida and stuff like that. Uh, and I had certainly improved at that point to where I was back winning again, back uh, making an okay hourly. And it, you know, I went on a couple of heaters between like 2012, 2015, but it turned out that the hourly that I was sustaining was not high enough to beat out the hourly from potentially practicing law. And so eventually I had to make that tough choice to devote most of my time to practicing law as a vocation and uh, just become a fun player and uh, play without a lot of expectations of winning or winning huge, but also not playing with the expectation of losing, like playing, lowering my expectations to uh, 
just having a nice winning year every year after Rakeback. I mean, I'm not even, I'm not even, uh, I'm not even beating myself for not winning before Rakeback. Like if back in the day, if I wasn't winning before Rakeback, I would probably be a, uh, be very self-doubting, but now it's, uh, it feels like an accomplishment because of how little time I get to devote to improving your poker. And especially because the contrast between law and poker in terms of one, the, the former just feels like work and it's paced really, really slowly, especially compared to online poker. Online poker, it's like playing four or five, six tables. You have a decision every couple seconds. And oftentimes it's, it's a really good mix of, of trivial decisions and uh, legitimately tough decisions. So you get, I get that um, feeling of, okay, no, I know I got this easy one, right? And then, okay, well, here's a hard one. It's really challenging me. And maybe I'll get it right. Maybe this guy will own me. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll just be interesting. Uh, an interesting hand and but you're getting a lot of those every single minute by contrast in the law it's like you draft a, a long document you wait for the courts to uh review it wait for your opponent to draft another long document it's like it's like poker if you got dealt a card every two weeks and you had to like work 20 hours to get each card <laughs> like it's uh just the pace is is glacial and that can certainly, uh, but, but that certainly means that when I'm done working the law job, I want to get into action. I want to get in that game and just fire and uh, make those decisions. And so live, live poker it, must feel like you're on the front lines. Um, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, oh my God, this is so great. So oh, there are 30 hands an hour. This is amazing. Oh, I mean, compared to law. Yes. Uh, it's it's like wow, I get to you know I get to see cards every two minutes. It's it's fantastic. Oh wow, only it only took this guy's only taking three minutes. Well, yeah, you know, he took at least three it's minutes. not the court. It's oh, not the took... court taking three months. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, but with with all that with that desire to play, I think that working a normal job um, really really sparks up that desire to play when I'm done, and to be. Uh, honest, I think playing poker and being successful at poker uh, has probably spoiled me for a lot of real jobs and kind of made me maybe not unhireable, but uh, even if I were to get hired, I feel like I would burn out very quickly from a lot of uh, conventional jobs. Even my my own law job right now is highly unconventional in that I work with my wife. We work on, we do stuff we believe in. So it's, so I don't have some sort of asshole boss who thinks I'm replaceable and who uh, doesn't have anything invested at all in my own improvement. And, you know, since I'm working with the woman I love, it's like, you can actually, you know, she's invested in my improvement. We're invested in each other and not just uh, having each other be strangers in office who have to get along because we have to get this work done. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, Going back to what you said, I, I'm pretty sure anything outside the world of poker, I'm pretty unhirable. Um, <laughs> as somebody that like has a business, I can't imagine hiring me for any reason uh, outside of like the poker space. Um, I think just one of the reasons why humans get into poker, and maybe I'm projecting, but I've had enough folks 
who've gotten into poker and had a lot of success on the podcast. And also I have my own journey to kind of lean on, but like you want freedom and autonomy to just do whatever it is you want to do. I mean, that's like, I didn't want a taskmaster. You know, that was the last thing in the world that I wanted. Um, I wanted to, you know, follow my bliss and poker for a long time. I'm not going to say that it's always been a bliss and has never felt like work because it, of course, does eventually feel like work. And there's a lot of non-blissful times and periods to go through. But I do value that freedom and that autonomy and really working towards something that is meaningful with purpose, um, having a vision, trying to solve giant problems. These are things that really resonate with me, um, trying to create things that are impactful in the poker space for my community, my people. I'm trying to have interesting conversations where the listener learns something. These are all things that have a great deal of meaning to me. And maybe there is some job that can fulfill all of those things. Um, but yeah, I don't know what that job might be. And I also have a suspicion that they probably wouldn't pay me what I want to get paid <laughs> after exactly. do, doing yeah. all of these things on my own um, as well. So yeah, I mean, I think that entrepreneurship resonates with me quite well as it relates to freedom and autonomy to, to, to be creative. I think that's another thing that I, I highly value is like being creative and solving problems on my own. Um, so yeah, I'm just eternally grateful for the world of poker in that sense. Let's So as you entered into your law career, um, what lessons did you take from poker that helped you? in your your new career path i think uh, one of the big ones is just not being as results oriented as most people are who don't have a decade of poker invariance uh under their belts uh, i think it detaches me a bit from some of the uh kind of losing emotional arguments that some that other lawyers might just be attached to or other strategies that through my experience in poker, I can, I guess, better estimate probabilities and the payoffs and use that to guide my decision-making. Whereas uh, a lot of lawyers just kind of fly by the seat of their pants and, and go with their gut and don't think about the probabilities and the payoffs that of their actions. And they could definitely get them in trouble. Yeah. And, and there's also this iterative process of learning too, and kind of going back and analyzing what happened and seeing the lessons you can learn and maybe what went wrong, what you could have done better. Um, I think a lot of people in the world sort of have this assumption that like they do something one time and they did like the optimal thing. They just kind of, yeah. they, they know 100% I did everything that, that I could have done. There was nothing else. And, and like, to me, um, I'm always just, big on doubting myself after the fact. <laughs> That's just like oh, a, yeah, yeah. a big trait of mine and just like questioning every little thing and asking myself, could I upgrade this? Could I upgrade that? Um, trying to really learn from my experiences. I think that poker does teach you that over time because if you're not learning from your experiences, you're not going to be able to make it as a professional for very long. Um, you just kind of flame out of this world um, so it's like a, a necessary survival trait, really, that I, I could imagine serving you quite well, um, just in really 
in any field that you enter into after being in poker. No, absolutely. Um, I think it's poker has also made me more patient in certain respects uh, because especially tournament poker, where sometimes you do have to pass up on something that you think might be a tiny edge uh, because you anticipate a greater edge coming along uh, and you don't want to, you know, ruin your one tournament life at it. I think that applies to certain legal strategies as well. And um, just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure how far into it I want to get here, but, uh, but now I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, not very far. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's apparently careened off the tracks. So, uh. <laughs> not very far. Um, well, cool. So I, I think that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's good enough. And as it relates to your day, your life day to day now, you know, we're rapidly running out of time and I would love to have you back for a round two to kind of ask you some of the, you know, lightning round questions that I have in my template. But for now, you know, what does your life look like these days? What role does poker play in your day to day? I, I assume you live in Nevada. Yes. Las Vegas. Yes. Cool. So I would say it plays a, uh, a still fairly large role in my life because first of all, I think I'll always be a, a fan of the game. So when it comes to keeping abreast of say Twitter drama or live streams or tournament results, um, you know, sometimes I'll find myself browsing those. Uh, and when it and I also feel like poker is my a bit of an escape for me, in that when I get home from doing legal work, uh, it's nice to just fire up sit and goes, and I'm still playing sit and goes mostly in tournaments these days, uh, on WSOP.com and sometimes ACR, um, but the sit and goes, especially hyper turbos, like I said before, it provides a nice mix of easy and tough decisions that I enjoy making. And so it's just a nice release and just a fun thing to do after work. And it's, and fortunately after rakeback, uh, I turn a profit. So these days I kind of view it as doing puzzles for entertainment with, it's like, it's like, if I got, if somebody asked me, do you want to get paid minimum wage to do Sudoku's and crossword puzzles? I'd probably be like, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, so it's a thing I would do for free. Uh, exactly. I do do it for free. So, uh, I mean, I'm not sure I would play poker for free because it, money is such an integral element to it. But uh, I certainly have no complaints about playing poker and uh, riding the swings. And ultimately, if it comes out to you know making a few dollars an hour uh, overall, that's that's nice. In addition to the the money I'm making from a job. What What would you say has been the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? unexpected thing probably meeting my wife i mean because uh i met her while we were both at the aclu of nevada and she was she was my boss then and uh, i mean she's still kind of my boss now in lawyering uh and uh but without poker i would never have thought to apply to an internship in nevada or in las vegas to so that i would have the opportunity to play poker while while i was doing that internship uh, and without that, I would never met her. So that's, that's probably the most unexpected thing. Um, and also 
I guess uh, we've also got three dogs and I wasn't a dog person growing up. So that was pretty unexpected. Uh, and I've, I've really come to love uh, dogs, pit bulls in, in particular, just a, a breed that melts my heart. Uh, you know, now you know, it's, it's tough because I, I, I go on Facebook and it automatically sends me these videos of pit bulls getting rescued. And it's like, if I watch this, I'm going to be in tears at work. Like, <laughs> how could I, how could I, that's another thing also my wife and I bonded over is there's that show pit bulls and parole, pit bulls and parolees. And uh, we watched an episode and by the end, we just turned to each other, we're both sobbing because we're just so emotionally wound up over the show. That's mm-hmm. a, you know, one of the moments where it's like, all right, I know, I know we're good together. <laughs> yeah. I, I see this person. I see their spirit. Um, so knowing that you're someone who, you know, pursues your bliss, chases your bliss, um, and also pursues things that are quite meaningful to you. What's a, a project right now that uh, you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Um, I would say some of uh, a lot of the legal cases that we have um, are very near and dear to my heart, especially when it comes to civil rights litigation. I think that when it comes to suing the police, we have cases right now uh, where police shoot uh, people's dogs and Obviously, we sue over that as a, because our contention is that it violates their Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable seizures. And shooting somebody's dog, it doesn't get much more of a seizure than that because you're ending the dog's life. Uh, and well, we've how, had some, how do these cases go down? I mean, is it like just shoot on sight? Uh, like, I don't know. Oh, they, they go down in all sorts of ways. Um, and... It, it's it's kind of horrifying in a way just how many how many dogs are shot every day in america by police um but in number? all sorts of ways i i don't but i'm sure one could google it uh it's uh it's, it's more than you would think i i it's I it's it's way more than you would hope for um but it happens during say the execution of warrants where police have an opportunity to to plan out a no-knock warrant say and they plan it out and the dog they have they know there's a beware of dog sign but they don't take any measures or preparations to um prepare for a dog being on that property when they serve this war they execute this warrant and that that's a case that we ended up settling a, a couple of years ago um where they did exactly that it, it was they went in just to execute this warrant despite knowing the dog was on the property or dogs plural were on the property and just did shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that one we survived uh, what's called summary judgment. And instead of taking it to trial, we ended up settling. Um, and uh, there's another case that we're in right now that I'm currently working on. It's an appeal because we ended up losing a district court when our client uh, had his uh, silent alarm get activated and a cop came and entered his yard and shot his dog, which normally in the normal circumstances that might not, uh, he might not be liable because there's the doctrine of qualified immunity, which shields officers if they're, if they're reasonable. But in this instance, the officer in question 
lied about taking mandatory dog encounter training. It's a Nevada law that all police officers have to, or police officers who interact with the public have to take mandatory dog training classes. And this guy, instead of taking the class, he just logged in, printed the certificate, logged out, and then represented that he had taken the class. And despite that, the, uh, the district court found that this officer's shooting of our client's dog was, was reasonable under the circumstances, even though he, like I said, lied about and admitted to lying about taking this mandatory training, which our argument is would have taught him techniques to uh, control a, a dog he might have been surprised by without resorting to deadly force. Um, and so we're currently appealing that one. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we get a good ruling. Um, I mean, we're drafting the briefs now. It'll be ages before a ruling comes out. Uh, but in this area, it's certainly tough because the, the way the law is being shaped right now by uh, the federal courts is divergent from what I think it should be. I think the courts are going in the wrong direction in being too uh, lenient in not holding government police specifically to higher standards um, and not and extending this doctrine of qualified immunity, which was originally intended to to protect reasonable efforts and not protect people who were engaging in lawbreaking or plainly incompetent, uh, which somebody who lies about taking the taking their mandatory training, I think that's is clearly both incompetent and uh, breaking the law. Well, it uh, also says something about just not caring about the training and not caring right. about some someone else's animals, not caring about animals in general. The number that I have here as I, I, I Google this is uh, 500 dogs a day, um, something like 182,000 a year shot by the police officers. And, and I mean, you don't actually consider that having an alarm, a silent alarm that can get tripped for you know a variety of reasons leads to your dog getting killed. I mean, that's just horrifying. You know, it's just a horrifying, terrible, terrible, terrible thing. Oh, yeah. um, I, and I mean, that, and that, these are the kind of cases that really that inspired me to go to law school to begin with. Just uh, somebody who's really been trying to get justice for somebody who's been um, subjected to the abuse of government power. Um, that just that's just uh, why I'm in the game, so to speak. Yeah, and that makes a and lot we do, of sense. We do, we, do, we do other work as well, but yeah. I think when it comes to really inspiring passion, um, that's that's the area where I, I feel the strongest. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm steamed up just thinking about it, uh, this, this story and this situation that like on some level as humans, I mean, there there is there must be the, some level of empathy or, you know, in this world, like how do we not have more research and how are we not prepared for something that ought to be so common? I mean, how many people own dogs? If you go to these places, Precisely. you're going to encounter a dog quite often and to just kind of blow off training because you're lazy because you don't care. I mean, it's just, I don't understand how that person could have a badge. Why wouldn't they just be instantly, out of there, right? Like, I, I mean, because if they're cutting corners there, where else are they cutting corners? Because the answer Absolutely. is many places. 
Oh yeah, and I mean it's that's uh, you know I think going to be one of our main arguments on appeal is that if uh, you're going to allow if you're going to protect officers from liability when they get caught with uh, this mandatory training, what mandatory training is next? Like, is it going to be firearms training is going to be next where they skip that and then they don't know what a safety is and they keep the safety off and shoot somebody? Is it going to be driving training where they, you know, they don't know their capabilities of their vehicle and they try to do some, some crazy maneuver and, and kill somebody on the road? Like it's, uh, you know, I don't want, it is a part, it is kind of like a slippery slope argument, but I want to, the argument is that we got to cut it off here before it slides any further. My argument is that if you're there to uphold the law and you're breaking the law, there's this obvious dissonance there. Like you're Absolutely. an instrument of the law and yet you don't care about it and you call other people bad guys. Um, and yet the same rule, the, the rules don't apply to you. Like there's a hip hypocrisy and dissonance and like it's something that yeah again like I said I'm <laughs> we're, we're gonna end this podcast on a high note but it's oh, yeah. <laughs> something that 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 really matters to me as well because like um yeah these are just very important things and like if you're um, going to arrest people for breaking the rules it feels like you should probably <laughs> be pretty good at following the rules absolutely. And that's, a, that's another thing that, about poker. And one thing that I'm really grateful about uh, having had success at poker is that I think it's allowed me to seek out work that uh, I believe in and I don't have to sell my soul and uh, just do like completely anodyne business work. Or I mean, we do represent businesses and I, you know, we're, I, I do enjoy my business clients, but uh, we also, I don't, I basically don't have to sell my soul to work as a lawyer. Right. And you get to I, I have, you choose have, your shots. Exactly. And I have essentially poker to thank for that. Without poker, I could just be well, working at some, some firm where I have absolutely no control over what I do or who I argue for or what cases that I end up uh, pursuing. Yeah. And I think that would be pretty devastating for me uh, emotionally and um yeah so we're gonna wrap up and uh you know the final question here i know you've got to take your puppy to the vet speaking yep. of, of the puppies um so where can the chasing poker greatness audience find or learn more about you on the worldwide oh man this is a tough question i've only asked it a thousand times uh, <laughs> if somebody wants to learn more about you where the hell do they go yeah where do they go uh, you can just, uh, go to my Twitter page, I guess, uh, um, Leo Walpert on Twitter. Uh, I do have a website and it, I've made a lot of attempts at blogging over the years that were very short lived because, uh, I get a lot, I do already do a lot of writing in, in, as in my day job. So by the time I, uh, I'm done putting all those legal words on the page, I, don't really have a lot of uh, desire to put anything else on a page. <laughs> Makes sense, unless man. It, unless it's shit posts on Twitter, then I love those. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> man. It's been great having you on, and like I said, we'll revisit around two in the near future. And um, good. yeah, great learning more about you. And it was great talking with you, Brad. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, it's fun. Thanks, man. You too. Talk to you. Have a good talk one. to you in the near future. Take care. Thanks for listening 
to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter, join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.